I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, Dutch sociologist Mark Schellenberg joins us to discuss his new books, Hysteria, Crime, Media, and Politics, and The Algorithmic Society, Technology, Power, and Knowledge. We'll be discussing everything related to Hysteria from its clinical definitions to the way philosophers like Hobbes and Foucault have used the term over the years, as well as the issue of mass hysteria and moral panic. We'll also delve into such topics as neoliberalism, globalization, sociologist Zygmunt Bauman's concept of liquid modernity, anti-immigrant rhetoric, the Rotterdam race riots, and much, much more. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Mark Schellenberg, author of Hysteria, Crime, Media, and Politics. Welcome to Parallax Views, Mark Schellenberg, author of Hysteria, Crime, Media, and Politics, a rather fascinating scholarly book that just recently came out, I believe, on March 29th, uh, 2021, um, from Rutledge. So how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, yeah, everything is great here. I'm actually now in Berlin with my family. The weather is nice, and uh, it's a pleasant time to be here. So, Mark, if you could, you're an interesting 
uh, sort of uh, sociologist and examiner of different social phenomena. Uh, you've written uh, a number of books and, and helped edit a number of books. You have uh, The Securitization of Society. Uh, you've written about algorithms and this book on hysteria. So what is the sort of overarching theme of your work? Well, the overarching theme of my work is um, is a sociological uh, uh, entrance. Uh, I'm always uh, interesting in... Uh, questions like why is disappearing as di at this moment uh, after these events in this period and uh, the main reason for writing this book on hysteria was a very empirical uh, question um, I'm invited a lot of times on national television in the Netherlands also in France and in Berlin and I often um, speak then about the amount of safety and security around us and when I'm on national television and I tell people that we actually live in Europe in a very safe society, the other day I find dozens of angry emails in my inbox. Scandalous, get a proper job, you're sucking up the left-wing press, and so on and so on. Um, I always uh, answer these people back, but I find it more interesting to understand their complaints and concerns and put these complaints and concerns in a wider sociological perspective. And that's what I hope to have achieved uh, with this book, Hysteria. Real quick, since a lot of my listenership um, is based in the U.S., what are some of the concerns that exist in Europe or the things that maybe there's hysteria around in Europe as compared to the U.S.? And maybe there's things that overlap, too. I think that a lot of things overlap. Uh, I, I define uh, hysteria, like I said, as a sociological phenomenon. So uh, that, that hysterical people share the feeling that they have lost control over their lives, uh, which makes them cast themselves as victims, even if they have not actually been targeted by crime or anything else. And, and also an important factor is that holding on to their victimhood, they have lost all sense of responsibility for their own behavior and the way they express their emotions at this stage. And uh, historical people, they, they scream for recognition, uh, desperate for the situation to be acknowledged. And they demand attention in the hope that people around them will take them seriously. And another staple ingredient, and I think it's the same in Europe as in the United States, is the violent expression of feelings and desires with the aim uh, of making your voice heard. So hysterics make use of an over-the-top language that is duly peppered with exclamation marks and capital letters, and it becomes increasingly formal over time. And if you look, uh, for instance, in politics, and I only point out to your former president um, uh, how he tweeted, how Trump tweeted, it was always with exclamation marks and capital letters. In a way, this language was also hysterical. So if we could, let's talk about the history of this term hysteria. You sort of take it back uh, to Hobbes. Could you speak about that? Well, I take it um, actually back a further in time. Eh? I take it back to the ancient Egyptian times. Eh? Hysteria is the oldest disease of mankind. And the thinking behind it was that uh, hysteria was caused by the womb, the womb of the women, which was believed to move freely throughout the body all over the way into the head and all emitting toxic fumes that led to hysteria. Uh, so it used to be called an illness of the womb. It comes from the ancient Greek 
hystericus, which means pertaining to the uterus. And the uterus means womb in Latin. So this was based on the belief that hysteria is caused by the womb, traveling through the body of the women, triggering a host of different symptoms on its way. Uh, later in time, uh, other explanations uh, started to rise. And one of the explanations is by, is by Hobbes, and he locates hysteria in an, a sense of a, belong, of a longing to power, in a sense of that primarily we have all been wolves. Eh? The, the famous expression, homini uh, lopi lupus, uh, that the man is to another man a wolf, is, is an expression that Hobbes used to point out to men that in our nature uh, existence or back uh, in, in the medieval and pre-medieval uh, times, uh, people behaved like wolves. And he calls this uh, uh, an existence of nature. And to get out of this existence of nature, we must leave the wolf in us, behind us, and hand over power to other men, to the king or politicians or the military or the police and so on. But this language uh, of war or of uh, existence of nature or existence of war, it still lives on in our language. Yeah? We, we talk about the war against corona, the war against crime, the war against terror. The war against drugs, any number of war things. War against yeah. drugs, yeah. So we live, we live in peaceful times yeah? after the Second World War uh, in Europe, for instance, but still our language is peppered with expressions as we're in war. And this language in some way is hysterical in itself. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the clinical idea of hysteria. I think it was used in a very gendered way historically, but I think there's also another way of using hysteria as sort of a, a, a sort of collective panic, you know, this idea of mass hysteria. So how do we go from that sort of gendered use of hysteria in clinical terms uh, to this sort of uh, term that has sort of a collective meaning when we're talking about mass hysteria. Yeah, uh, you, you're completely right. Eh? If you look at the history of the word, it used to be a clinical term. And uh, the whole conclusion in my book is that we have left the whole uh, hysteria as a medical disease or as a medical model. Instead, it has turned out to be the business model of our society. It's the business model in our economy, it's the business model in our politics, but it's also the business model on social media. If you look at how the algorithms of Facebook, how they work, they put in first in your timeline, the most emotional, the most historical posts. So back to your question, it used to be a person gendered type of disease. It was always aimed at female, at female bodies. But it used to be or turned out to be collective, I think, with the rise of social media, with the rise of, of, of all kinds of uh, public media, in which way expressions and hysterical expressions are transferred much faster than it used to be in the Middle Ages or in the Greek or Egyptian times. So with the rise of public media and especially the rise of social media, hysteria turned out to be a social phenomenon and a collective phenomenon. It turned out to be, in many cases, a form of mass hysteria. Could you speak a little bit more to how sort of mass hysteria uh, arises, I guess, within a social context and what the fallout from, from mass hysteria is? Well, uh, the important thing is here how uh, social media works. 
Um, if you look, for instance, on uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, platforms on which hysteria spreads like an infection disease, uh, it shows clearly how this collective contagion works. Uh, you could even argue that hysteria is an inherent part of Twitter, for instance. Uh, in the often overheated discussions on the platform, Twitter hooligans voice themselves on each other, bandying about tweets full of the necessary capital letters, exclamation marks, moving gifs, and so on. I think you could even say if you get out hysteria of Twitter, Twitter is bankrupt tomorrow. So you see that uh, these social media, uh, they fuel uh, these hysterical posts, put them on your timeline in front of us, and even the algorithms of Facebook uh, were designed uh, to put the most hysterical posts, the most emotional posts in front of your timeline. Uh, that leads to, if you're confronted all the time with these posts uh, with the, on these platforms, then in some way they turned out to be infectious. And many people try to believe then the clips and the posts that are on Facebook, on Twitter, and so on. And this can lead in many cases to a form of a mass hysteria. I'm curious, uh, with regards to like specific issues that we're facing in, in society right now. Um, so for example, you know, I, I think we have sort of uh, anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric in the US with figures like Trump. Uh, we've also seen that in Europe, even in um, you know, places, uh, the, the sort of Dutch parts of Europe uh, with uh, figures like Gert Wilders over the years. Uh, so how does, I guess, hysteria connect to the rise of sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric and violence? Well, well, there's a close res relation to it. If you look in politics, for instance, in the Netherlands with uh, Geert Wilders and uh, uh, someone from the right uh, wing in, in the Netherlands, but also in Germany yeah, with, with uh, right-wing parties and how they are look at immigrants, uh, they use language like uh, they are cannibals uh, or they are uh, taking in our jobs or they are raping our daughters. But in fact, there is no evidence at all that that uh, happened uh, on a scale or has ever happened. But still, that they talk about immigrants uh, in the way Hobbes talked about the uh, human being. They are wolves. They're going to eat our uh, society. Uh, uh, they're going to rape our daughters and so on. And they are always warn for this danger of people outside of our nation, outside of our safely imagined places, that, that they are a threat to society. And if uh, politicians talk this way about human beings, eh? immigrants are human beings, uh, in types of wolves or in types or, of animals or in, uh, in types of, so, of uh, dangerous species or, or, or aliens, um, then you, uh, in some way, you, you turn your society uh, towards a society that is based on anger, that is based on, on uh, a hostile uh, climate. And in a way, you feed, I think, um, many hysterical feelings of people who already feel that they have become victim of something much bigger. And in that way, that is also one of the um, explanations I give in this book for the rise of uh, um, uh, hysteria in our society is that, that many people 
um, don't feel protected anymore. Um, in concrete terms, uh, uh, they don't feel this is our society anymore. They have questions as who am I? Where do I belong? How important is my culture, my history? And all those questions are raised in some way by globalization, driven by a neoliberal thinking, but also by social media. And in some way you could see that this uh, primal sense of security, yeah, the social glue of society, uh, that you see a decline of this with this whole notion of globalization and coming in of other people from other countries. But even uh, Corona, uh, Corona was something that came out out of nowhere. And suddenly for two years, our whole society was turned upside down. And that's why we talk about a war against Corona and a war against this. But the current feeling is, and I think maybe that's the same in the US as in Europe, is people have questions like, who am I? Where do I belong? What is my history? What is my culture? And so on. Is there a relationship between, I guess, these cases of hysteria or, or mass hysteria that we see now and maybe... Uh, I don't know how to put it, but maybe the the type of thing that that sociologists like Zygmunt Bauman would talk about this idea of of liquid modernity, where people yeah. feel like they could always be falling through the quicksand if they make one you know false move. Um, is there a connection between maybe uh, the the sort of level of stress we have just in daily life and uh, the the sort of politics of hysteria? Yeah, an excellent question. Yeah, uh, uh, Bauman, eh, uh, a famous uh, European sociologist, points out eh, that we live in liquid times. That everything has become liquid. Politics have become liquid. Security have become liquid. Everything has become liquid, and everything becomes liquid means that we have lost a primal sense of safety of security. And if you look back at the old notion of hysteria. Uh, like I said, in, in the Greek and ancient times, hysteria was believed that it was uh, raised by the womb who was wandering inside of our body, inside of the female body. And of course, uh, it was impossible. But still, if you look at the old terms or, or our knowledge of the womb, the womb is our safest place to be. Eh? It's, it's the first place where we grow up, inside of the womb of our mother. And this is the safest place which we feel. And many sociologists claim, and I agree with them, that in our lives, we are searching for a new womb and a new womb and a new womb. So after you come out of the womb, the family is your new womb. Then you look inside of a safe street, a safe house, a safe village, a safe city, a safe neighborhood. Every time we try to invoke this primal sense of security, which was already in the womb, which was closely connected to the disease of hysteria. Now, of course, the womb of the female body cannot move, but still this primal sense of security, I think uh, we have lost. And we have lost becomes our times in some way or another way have become liquid. There are no grand narratives. There are no big stories anymore. Everything has turned out to be a market model, everything. Uh, there is a decline of all kinds of social meeting places, ranging from youth clubs to corner shops, there are places where we meet uh, people and other. It's a vital function in bringing people together. They provide a sense of security. So you see, in a lot of spheres and a lot of domains, this primal sense of security, which was already in the womb itself, has completely disappeared in these times. 
And this, this, this gives a lead to feelings of fear, of frustration and anger. And you see that these feelings of fear, frustration and anger, that that is a recurrent factor in outbreaks of hysteria in our society. So in regards to the, the, the crime element, because your, your book is called uh, Hysteria, Crime, Media, and Politics. How does uh, hysteria affect the way we address issues like crime? And I, I like how there's a chapter in your book called uh, From Minority Report to Reporting Minorities. Uh, th there is sort of this issue I think we face of how hysteria can lead us to be using uh, sort of growing surveillance technologies uh, in a way that is uh, potentially very dangerous uh, or counterproductive in, in dealing with issues like crime. Yeah. Well, well my chapter on crime uh, starts with, with empirical evidence. Uh, like I said, I, I'm invited a lot of times on national television in the Netherlands uh, to talk about the crime rates. And if you look at the crime rates in the Netherlands, and this is also true for uh, the United States, although the last two years you've seen a shift. But before that, it was the same in the United States. That you see that for almost 20, 25 years, crime is going down on every level. I'm not talking here about uh, theft of bicycles. I'm also talking about murder, rape, and so on. And of course, there are some exceptions, but if you look, as a sociologist, in time, over a period of 20, 25, 13 years, you see that the crime rates are going down. Also, the rates of victimhood are going down, not only in the Netherlands, but in all the countries around my country, same as in the United States, with a few exceptions. But although crime rates are going down, I've never seen a minister of justice who says very proudly, look, people, crime rates are going down. No, it's the other way around. If you listen to a minister of justice, they always pinpoint at the dangers, the feeling of unsafety, uh, the crime that is happening instead of looking at the bigger picture. So that means that a negative way of looking at security has taken the lead in our way of talking about security. But if you look etymology to the word security, for instance, the Dutch word, the Dutch word of security is veiligheid. And veiligheid is originally derived from the middle Dutch words veilig and veilig. But these words have much more meanings. They also have meanings like trustworthiness, friendliness, care. It's the same with the Swedish word for security, strigget. Uh, the Swedish trigger has much more positive connotations than security. It points out also out to meanings of trust and attachment to society. It's the same with the German word geborgenheid. That means a sense of belonging. So security has two meanings. Of course, there's the meaning of crime. And you have to deal with crime. No issue about that. But the other side of security is about trust, is about Care is about a sense of belonging. And my idea is that you can also work on these connotations of security. You can also try to um, um, enhance trust. You can also try to this sense of belonging to make it bigger, make it greater. So there are two ways of working on crime. But if you look at European countries, but also at the United States, the only connotation of feeling unsafe, feeling unsecure, 
is leading the discourse on crime and politics. And if this is leading the discourse on crime and politics, then means that the measures politicians are taking are becoming more harsh, becoming more severe. They're trying to do everything to prevent crime. And I think in, in, in a lot of ways, this has become unproductive. It has become unproductive because if you have a police that's only doing attacking crime, uh, going out in the neighborhoods, getting people out of the neighborhoods, back into the jail and so on, instead of raising trust, being there, show that you can be trusted, um, there is a paradox. And this paradox I call the safety paradox. And that is the more safer our society gets, the more unsafer uh, the lack of safety uh, feels to citizens. So it sounds like there can be sort of a, a positive way of understanding a term like security in a negative way. Is this also true of the term hysteria itself? Or are there almost, is it possible that there's uh, positive forms of uh, sort of hysteria and sort of uprising within society? Yeah, there's, there's a perfect, uh, there's a very good question. If you look once again eh, to the, to the uh, history of, of, uh, of hysteria, you see then at the end of the 19th century, uh, that there was a, an, a, a lot of hysteria in European societies, a lot of hysteria. Uh, a lot of hysteria among, of course, uh, like I said, it's a very stigmatizing term. Uh, it was uh, led to believe that there was a lot of an hysteria on females, uh, on women. Uh, but what happened, uh, what took place in the 19th century, is that at that time also this mass hysteria leads to social reforms aimed at giving women the same rights and opportunities as men. And you could also say that the, the tightly laced corset disappeared at the end of the 19th century, making space for more liberal views on marriage, on sexuality, and the right to work for women. So this is, at one time, there was a mass hysteria at least if we have to trust the doctors of that age. But at the same time, it led also to a more, what you called a positive or a constructive hysteria, which set things in motion. And this constructive or positive hysteria, I think could also be an engine for change, in way, a way of making a contribution to the world. It acts for the greater good rather than out of self-interest. So that means that certain issues in our society should be treated or could be treated with a little less hysteria, while others could do with some more. I think the rates of crime could do with a little less hysteria, but I think there are other topics we could have, we could be uh, more hysterical about it. And I think now, for instance, uh, about issues like illiteracy or poverty. Uh, for instance, the Netherlands is an extremely wealth country. But in the Netherlands, uh, almost 50 million people live. An extremely wealthy country. I live in it. It counts until this day uh, almost 300,000 illiterates and one and a half million semi-literate people. But such figures do not make the headlines in our newspapers. You will need to read anything about it in newspaper. If you look at another well, wealthy country, for instance, the United Kingdom, and that no one is raising the alarm over the fact that 
approximately more than 14 million of the inhabitants in the United Kingdom live in, live in destitution, including 4.6 million children. Eh? Uh, nor does anyone seem to be worried about the large part of this group being homeless or having to sleep in the open air or in covered public spaces, spaces such as railway stations and bicycle enclosures. And I think these kind of topics could deal or could have a little bit more hysteria in politics and on social media, but no one is talking about them. So... In regards to one of the sort of specific cases you cover, you deal with the uh, race riots in Rotterdam. Um, for my uh, US-based listeners, could you talk about Rotterdam and what happened there, these race riots and how you uh, talk about this in the book, Hysteria? Yeah, well, um, I talk about the race riots in, in the Netherlands. Uh, they took place in, in, the, in the early 70s. Uh, this year, it makes 50 years ago that the first race riots took place in the Netherlands in the city of Rotterdam. In the UK, they happened 10, 15 years earlier. But in the Netherlands, the first time they appeared was in the beginning of the 70s, actually in 72. And in 72, uh, there was also a lot of issues about immigration, what we just talked about. And you have to understand that Rotterdam is an arrival city. Rotterdam has the biggest harbor of the world. So in the end of the 60s, in the beginning of the 70s, a lot of people of foreign countries, especially of Turkey and Morocco, came to Rotterdam to work in the harbor. And they all lived in a part of Rotterdam. This is the south part of Rotterdam. This is the most poorest part of Rotterdam. And all these people who have worked in the harbor of Rotterdam at the same time, they took houses of other people in that area that lead to a lot of conflicts, a lot of anger by the original people who already lived there for 10, 20, 100 years. And this has led to, and it started in August 72, to the biggest race riots we have experienced in the Netherlands. For almost nine days, uh, there were riots going on. Uh, people were throwing in uh, bombs, uh, fire into this Turkish houses, throwing out all the stuff, these people out onto the streets. Uh, they were attacked with knives, uh, media set, even with guns, although there was no empirical evidence about that. And I was very interesting to see at that time, eh, we're now talking about 72, if you compare it to the language in politics nowadays, how people in politics nowadays talk about immigrants, how people in 72, at least in politics, talked about these race riots. And it appeared that politics uh, 50 years ago talked in a very different language than nowadays politics uh, talk if they deal with the issue of immigration and people from foreign countries coming to our country. If you could, I, I think in the US, th there's a problem with how some people understand or think about um, sociology as an academic field. I think that a lot of people in the US uh, have misconceptions about sociology as a field. I think, uh, you know, for instance, I had someone say to me that, uh, oh, oh, sociology is based on, a, a, you know, finding anecdotes uh, about people's experiences. And I, I think that's a misunderstanding because to me, sociology can be a very um, rigorous field. And I think there's a lot of empirical research 
that goes into sociology. I think people like yourself uh, or, or the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu uh, engage in extremely rigorous uh, research. And it's not just about finding people's anecdotes. So I, I know this is uh, maybe slightly off topic, but maybe you could talk about uh, what kind of research goes into writing a book like Hysteria, because I think it'll clear up misconceptions some people have about sociology as a field. Well, this book actually, um, to give people an understanding, took me, um, I think, four or five years of research. And this research was not only uh, reading books by other socialists, but also doing empirical research on my own. Uh, uh, in the book, there are two or three chapters who are completely based on empirical research of my own by people are so uh, full of anger in some kind of neighborhoods, why they feel so emotional about their uh, neighborhood, why they are feeling, like I said, a loss of belonging to their own street. So for instance, I did for two years empirical research in the south of Rotterdam, where this race riot started in 72 to find out how people now experience their lives, including people who have been part of these race riots. Uh, I spoke also to them. Has anything changed in 50 years? Has your neighborhood has becoming better in 50 years? And if the case is not, why not? And actually, it did not become any better. Uh, there are still a lot of drug dealing. There are still a lot of uh, weapons and knives on the street. So it took me two years to speak with the inhabitants of these neighborhoods where the race riot started in 72, to find out where their emotions, where their frustration, where their anger comes from, and how this can lead to all kinds of hysterical reactions. And next to being two years in this neighborhood, talking to people, uh, going to all kinds of meetings where these people are, sitting on couches, uh, just see how things are going into streets. I also did, and that was for a different chapter, a lot of uh, research in the archives uh, of uh, Rotterdam to see in the archives how politicians talked about some matters in the early 70s, in the early 80s, to find out why the discourse on security and safety, but also on livability and immigration has changed so drastically in 30 or 40 years. So back to your question, um, this book took me four or five years of research and writing, including two years of purely empirical uh, research into uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods where the poor live to find out, to talk with them, to go into their homes, to drink coffee with them, to find out where their anger and where their frustration comes from and how does this lead to all kinds of hysterical reactions. I just had maybe one or two more questions. Uh, the, the first is, uh, you deal with a few different philosophers in the book. We already mentioned Hobbes, uh, but are there any other philosophers that deal with the issue of hysteria that, that you find interesting or that may be interesting to my audience, their sort of understanding of it and maybe how it's uh, driven our understanding of hysteria. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I treat a lot of uh, different sociologists and philosophers. I, 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 I'm, I look, for instance, into the work of Michel Foucault, eh? Michel Foucault, the famous uh, French philosopher. I also look into the work of Gilles Deleuze. Uh, at the same time, another French philosopher 
especially in Europe, which is a very big household name. And if you look into the books of, uh, of Foucault, hey, he shows uh, how hysteria has become a medical uh, disease in the 17th and 18th century and how it was diagnosed by all kinds of doctors and how the women, uh, it's always about women, uh, were dealt with in hospitals and clinic and were diagnosed uh, with all kinds of new measures. So it's very interesting to read um, the Foucault, how uh, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, hysteria turned out to be a medical model in some way or another way, how you can govern a society. But I also want to get rid of Foucault, not in a sense that he's not right about the 17th and 18th century, but I think hysteria is no longer a medical model. Eh? It's moved out of the DSM, the handbook that doctors and psychoanalysts use when they look for a kind of disease. So it's officially no longer a medical model. It's not officially longer a, a disease anymore. So what I try to do is to push Foucault further, to push Foucault into the 20th and 21st century. And that's why I make a move in this book that hysteria is no longer a medical model, but it has turned out to be the business model of our society in politics, in economy, on social media, and so on. Hysteria leads to attention. And in politics, in the economy, on social media, everybody nowadays wants to get attention. Earlier uh, in our conversation, you mentioned the term neoliberalism and, and globalization. And uh, I, I know that there's always uh, new listeners that I have that they'll hear the term neoliberalism and it gets thrown around a lot in, in the U.S. now. And it, it sort of is given context um, in a lot of the discourse in the U.S. at times. So what do we mean by that term um, neoliberalism? And I know that that's a little bit a field of, of just talking about hysteria, but I wanted to clarify that for my listeners. No, no, that's a very good question. Um, the classical model, economical model, is called uh, um, uh, a liberal thinking. That is, is a classical model, and the classical model of liberal thinking is that you do, you let you let the marks market do their work, so there's no interference of the government, and this is the classical liberal thinking of the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And it started uh, with, with a lot of economical philosophers, uh, famous economical uh, philosophers. And it turns out in the end, the, the Chicago school in the United States in the 20th century. The difference between liberalism and neoliberalism is that neoliberalism is not about laissez-faire, about doing nothing by the government and letting the market do the work. No, neoliberalism means that the government interferes in order to uh, uh, let the market uh, work better. So the government interferes to let the market work better. And that is why neoliberalism differs, differs from classical liberalism. Classical liberalism is purely about laissez-faire, the market on its own. Neoliberalism is when the government interferes to let the market work better. And that's the difference between liberalism and neoliberalism. And now I think from Ronald Reagan till nowadays, 
uh, you've seen the rise of neoliberalism. Uh, of course, they always claim we do nothing. We let the market do the work, but that's not true. There are a lot of economical laws raised. Uh, you see how uh, nowadays eh, uh, Uber and Facebook are helped by governments uh, to become big players in uh, Europe and so on. And there are all kinds of examples when there is no free market at all, but instead government is helping all kinds of tech companies or big enterprises to make more profit and uh, make their position stronger. And that's the difference between neoliberalism and the old classical liberalism, which was uh, from the original about laissez-faire, about letting do the market uh, do their work on their own. That's not happening nowadays anymore, not in the United States and not in Europe at all. So I'm, I'm glad that we clarified that because I think that's important to understand in the sense of what we were talking about earlier with uh, websites like Facebook or, or Twitter or these various social media sites, uh, they, they essentially uh, sort of help fan the flames of, of hysteria or uh, even moral panic. And that, that is one of the last things I wanted to ask you about. What, what do we make of this term um, moral panic and how does it tie into our ideas, our ideas of, of mass hysteria? Well, it's very close. Eh? The, old, the old idea of the, the classical idea of moral panic is that, that, that when something happens in our society um, that gives lead um, yeah, to, to a lot of uh, anxiety in the media, for instance, that was called moral panic. Uh, when there are shootings uh, at a high school or uh, when there is a case of pedophilia, uh, there was always uh, the, the moral panic was the whole idea that, that, that uh, certain issues uh, are exaggerated or are uh, blown up in the press. Um, and in that's the same way how uh, mass hysteria develops. So mass hysteria in some way or another way is closely related to the phenomenon of moral panic. The whole exaggeration in the press, the whole exaggeration in politics when something happens. How bad it is, eh? make no mistake about it. How bad some things are, this can lead to an exaggeration. This can lead to new laws. This can lead to new measures. When only if you look at it, what happened, it was, for instance, once a time. Or what happened was not that big we thought it was. But in the heat of the moment, there is always this discourse, this, this talk, these headlines in, in, on social media, in a newspaper, on Fox television, that this must never happen again. So in that way, we need new laws, new measures, uh, all these harsher punishments, for instance. And in some way in this book, I try to flip the coin. Of course, we need laws, we need punishments. No question about it, but I think we can also work about raising trust in government. We can also work about giving more care to people in disadvantaged neighborhoods. We can also work about this, what I call a sense of belonging. And I think politicians, but also other kinds of people have to look at issues at these both ways. Yes, in some way we need laws, we need punishment, but at the same way, we must not forget 
that the whole issue, of, for instance, of security and safety is also about care, is also about feeling safe in a place. It's also about these softer notions. And one of the pleas or one of the conclusions in my book is that you can also work on these other notions of some issues, like, for instance, security and safety. Last thing here, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about, you have a, another book that just, I think, came out on June 30th, uh, The Algorithmic Society, and, and that you edited that with uh, Rick Peters, uh, The Algorithmic Society, Technology, Power, and Knowledge. Uh, maybe you could just give my listeners a brief preview, preview uh, of what you mean by the sort of algorithmic society, and uh, maybe it ties in in some way to all of this. Yeah. Um, well, it ties into the book Hysteria. Both books are, are, are very closely related, although Hysteria is more a public book. It's written in a very, uh, I hope you agree, in a very um, easy way. Uh, the other book is more um, a book for scientists and for scholars. And the algorithmic society is the whole idea that, that every aspect of our life uh, is governed by big data and by algorithms. Uh, from on Netflix, uh, the movies uh, that we click on, on Facebook, the messages we click on, uh, uh, how they work in hospitals, even how they work with the police. Think, for instance, about inventions like predictive policing. Our society is structured, is governed, you could say, by big data and by algorithms. And if our society has become algorithmical, eh, the algorithmical society, then again, questions become important like, what is good care on algorithms? How can we avoid that algorithms lead to ethnic profiling? How can we uh, make sure that algorithms uh, do not lead to discrimination of minorities? And this book, Algorithmic Society, deals with these kind of questions. How can we take care, and care in the classic way of cura, eh? it is also in the word securitas, how can we take care that our algorithmic society turns out to be not a discriminatory society, or not a society in which ethnic profiling has become the rule? So in closing here, we didn't really talk about it much in, in this conversation, but uh, one of the areas that has always interested me when it comes to this issue of hysteria and sort of moral panics is in the US, we seem to have moral panics constantly. You know, it's the, oh, the kids are being corrupted by heavy metal or the kids are being corrupted by Dungeons and Dragons games. Uh, in what ways does hysteria uh, maybe take our eyes off the mark of, of what the real issues are or, uh, how can hysteria lead us to misassess the cause of uh, social phenomena that are afflicting our society? Uh, that, 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 that was the whole reason why I, uh, why I wrote this book. Uh, we started uh, our conversation with the, the emails I receive when I say that we actually live in a very safe country. And, but I want to get in this book a level deeper than purely the emotional part of hysteria. So yes, there is an emotional part of hysteria. And it's very important to understand uh, this phenomenon and even understand how mass hysteria works. But beneath these emotions of fear, 
and anger and frustration, I think there is something different. And what is different, I try to find out in this book. So go all the way back to the Egyptian times, to the Greek times, to see in a more, in a broader view, how hysteria has become part of our lives, but that it deals with other type of emotions than purely fear and anger, but that beneath it, beneath hysteria, I think is something else. And one of the things that is something else or what is deeper behind it, if you look at it for ages and over time, is this loss of sense of belonging, is this loss of a feeling of security. And that is one of the conclusions of the book. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope everyone uh, checks out the book, Hysteria, Crime, Media and Politics. I think it's great. Uh, for the layman and the scholar alike. And I, I think that was uh, the intent with the book. I think it's a great book for students uh, or scholars. So I, I appreciate the book and I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Okay, I'm glad to be there and uh, all the best with your uh, show. does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Schellenberg, author of Hysteria, Crime, Media, and Politics. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I'm currently looking over the Patreon list to update the producer's credits that you hear at the beginning of the show. Bear with me while I do that. Your support is what keeps this show going. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.